0: أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم اللهم wa وسلم وبارك على سيدنا ومولانا محمد وعلى اله وصحبه وسلم سبحانك اللهم لا علم لنا إلا ما علمتنا إنك أنت العليم الحكيم وعنده مفاتيح الغيب لا يعلمها إلا هو ويعلم ما في البر والبحر وَمَا تسقط مِنْ ورقة إِلَّا يَعْلَمُهَا وَلَا حبة فِي ظُلُمَاتِ الْأَرْضِ وَلَا رَطْبٍ وَلَا يَابِسٍ إِلَّا فِي كِتَابٍ مُبِينٍ <clears throat> Does anyone have any questions before we begin?
1: What?
0: Questions before we begin? No
1: questions? I
0: have one question. The one second. Amal, do you have any questions? Uh, okay, okay. good. ahead. <laughs>
1: question is, uh, when Prophet uh, uh, Suleyman, uh they brought him the 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 top of the, of the Belkis, hmm. uh, just in the one second or one minute, how did it happen? And I don't know who brought it, and how he could bring such a long distance, such a short time.
0: The, the the Quran says somebody from Sulaiman's court who had knowledge of the Book of Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala. Uh-huh. So he used this um, uh, the inner knowledge of, of Kitabullah uh-huh. to bring it. And you see, time is is bendable. Time is is like this; it's 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 bendable. Time and space. So there are people that can do that, that can bend time. I mean, it's not normal, but there are people uh, that can do that. So he used this, you know, these secrets of the the book of Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala, to be able to transport this over time and over space almost instantaneously. So do
1: you think that in the future we will be able? To- Instead of the car, we will say, I want to go here,
0: I want to go there. I, no, go. I, I think this is reserved for the awliya. I mean, this is, I don't think this is going to be commercial. But I don't, I don't know. <laughs> for the awliya. Well, oh,
1: yeah. everybody is awliya.
0: <laughs> Every, I don't know. I mean, probably not. If I had to guess, I don't know. Allahu Alam. But um, in, in Islamic literature, these people are called Ahlul Khatwa. The people of the step or the distance some some of the awliya they have this karama this miracle that they can they can you know i'm going to go pray in the kaaba and you know you go pray and you come back you know some some of the awliya they can do this so but for most of us this will not we will not experience this so but if you do please let me know
1: i am searching <laughs>
0: So any of the college folk uh, have any questions? You're new? Are you new? You. Yeah? No, I've been in the mosque before. Okay, I didn't notice, I'm sorry. So any of the college uh, folk visiting, mathematically college folk, as I said at the khutbah, not like you feel like you're in college. If there are no questions, we'll dive into Sayyidina Musa. But... We can ask, okay. Are you college age? Yeah. <laughs> not Mathematically. Yeah, what's up? Oh, that's not what I said. I was saying that physician I have to correct this, but go ahead. Yes.
2: Uh, 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 so the thing I was missing is based on what criteria are certain actions. So people have criteria, such so just modesty and so on and so on. We have guidance. So what they did not hear is the criteria on which if we, uh, we are going to judge this new situation, if we are going to, if I read whether something is allowed
0: or not, what are the basic criteria to those categories? in in general when it comes to the sharia in general whenever there is a question that deals with gender relations the automatic answer is that it's haram unless there is some kind of proof or mechanism that makes it halal Whereas, for example, when it comes to like food and drink, the natural sharia answer is that it's halal. Food, any food and drink is halal, unless there is something that would cause us to make this haram. So there are a few categories that when we wear the lens of the sharia and we look at uh, situations, we have automatic. So in gender relations, the automatic disposition of the sharia is that it's haram. Because of the importance that Islam places on lineage So, can a man have intimate relations with a woman and vice versa? The normal response would be, no, it's haram But I have a marriage, a nakah Okay, then it's halal, something like that So, shaking hands and these type of things This was not normal, maybe even in this culture It was not normal um, you know, maybe 50, 60 years ago, it was not something that was very you know common. So these were not issues that the fuqaha were concerned with because it was just was not an issue. So when this issue arises, what is the auto, the automatic answer? Will be no, you can't. It's it's haram to shake hands. Okay, but what if we investigate the hadith and the the stories of the sahaba and the stories of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and we find evidence that would make us say no, it's not haram. In that case, okay, then, then, it, then, then we, can, we can accept that. So we find, for example, and I mentioned last week, the Prophet said, "Anala لا I do not shake hands or touch hands with women. But any in the hadith literature, the Prophet uses the first person, this translates for the one translating this, these texts as something that is specific, khas, specific for the Prophet Wasallam. If it was something for all of us, he would have taught us and said that this is for all of us. So we said this, this proof text will not work to say that shaking hands is haram. The Prophet wasallam did not do that. So when the Prophet wasallam came to accept the allegiance, the bayah of the women, he didn't put his hand in their hands, you know, that, that type of thing. And there are other hadith that talk about the impermissibility of a man touching a woman. And when we investigated, not me, but when the ulama investigated these hadith, they find that they were extremely weak extremely weak meaning that we cannot use them as a proof to say that it is haram so after long research the you know the fuqaha of you know the last generation and this generation investigating this issue they said there is no proof in the hadith that would make shaking hands a man shaking hands with a woman haram so we can move this issue from haram to it's permissible permissible as long as it's done without um you know, illicit desire. So that's a long answer, but that's, from your, your, your question of criteria, this is how the jurist thinks. It's kind of boring and, and, and detailed, but this is how the thing works that we have.
2: Chooses a certain track of action, uh, and P, uh, person B chooses uh, a certain another track of, uh, uh, of action. Uh, it may be uh, it, there may be varieties uh, from a liberal point of view. Some people may act uh, a more conservative, other more liberal, and so on so on. So, um, um, so um, I think. Um,
0: Very very good So the Sharia Is not telling us What we should do The Sharia answers the question If you do A What is the ruling Of the five rulings that we have Does this action involve The Sharia is not saying To do this or that The Sharia answers another question Can I watch TV Or can I purchase a TV Uh, Can I buy a car Uh, Can I uh, combine my prayers if i 'm traveling uh, if i 'm sick, can I break my fast in Ramadan? The, the Sharia just answers that question what would the in the five categories, what would the Sharia say? The Sharia does not tell us what you should do, what you should do, what you should do that 's something else. so when people are conservative or liberal, as you say, the issue is in what we should do, like what is day-to-day life now, forget the sharia, day-to-day life, how do you live Islam day-to-day, we act what, usually we act with what is considered normal, customary for the population in which we live. Okay, so for example, and these are real examples that I have witnessed, you know, but but I'm just giving you without names. You know, uh, I'm going on my graduation day to accept the diploma, and in my case, my advisor actually was, was a woman, okay? And it's customary that on the stage they hand you the diploma and you shake your hands. This is not the place to be conservative with this issue. Then don't go in the first place. But don't stand on stage in front of all of these pe- people wearing Western academic regalia, expecting you to break that, no- then don't go in the first place. In that, you, it would be appropriate to shake hands. Or in a business meeting or in a business transaction or something like that. That's normal. But then we come into the mosque. It's not normal inside the mosque for the imam to go talk to and shake hands with the sister. That doesn't mean I'm being hypocritical. It's just, it's not normal. It's not what we do. It's not the custom in this place. So the idea of custom, what's proprietary, is part of how the Sharia works. It doesn't mean that we're hypocritical. It means that the Sharia acknowledges that in this time and in this place, there are norms. But in another time, in another place, there are norms. As long as my actions are based on proper sharia understanding and principles, then I can act this way and I can act that way. A woman wearing all black or covering her face would be very normal in the, in the Arabian Gulf. It's very abnormal in North Africa. For a woman walking around wearing niqab in Cairo or or Tunisia, it's uh, you know you'd get it's something else. But Algeria, this very not normal. It's not normal for women to dress like that. Or the color I I mentioned this once. The colors that women wear in North Africa. It's not normal to dress like that in Arabia. So the custom, the orf, the way that people carry out their Islam, that's also part of it. In general, people should do what they feel comfortable doing, and as long as Either action is permissible. As a community, we should not judge one another. So the sharia, when somebody asks me this question, this does not equate to me saying, you must shake hands across the gender. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, what is, the, is it permissible? Yes or no? Yes, for these reasons. That's all I'm saying. What should you do? It depends on the circumstance. Does that make sense? That's very important that we all understand that. If we read somewhere that the sharia allows this, and you know, the famous example is you know, a man marrying more than one wife I mean the sharia says a lot of things The sharia is not saying you have to go, for us you have to go do this It's just saying that this is, it governs the, the actions of the human condition as best as possible What should each of us do? It depends on our own circumstance and our own time And where we live and how we live Our resources, things like that Does that make sense?
3: Yeah You had a question? I had to. Yeah I don't want to phrase this one I guess it's more on like The stance on marijuana And hashish in particular I guess like what is the Islamic definition of intoxication Because intoxication by those kinds of drugs Is not the same as alcohol intoxication And I don't know The
0: sharia has two definitions for intoxications Uh Muskir Which intoxicate And mufattir Which makes you high So it's not just intoxication But it's also I don't know the technical term, but what makes you high? Mm-hmm. So, uh, marijuana, uh, hashish, these things are of the latter. They're not muskir. It's not an. It's not. It's not an alcoholic types of intoxication, but it makes you high. The result of both actions, from the point of view of the Sharia, is it takes you out of complete control of your mental faculty. Anything that takes the human being out of their rash, their normal rational. Disposition The sharia sees as haram Why? Because the intellect Is that organ Which Allah uh, Dictates his speech to In the Quran So when Allah says Ya ayyohan amanu Or something like that He's speaking to our intellect So if I don't have my intellect At that moment That means that I have somehow Almost One can say become less human Unless I have to Like if I have to have A painkiller for surgery Or something like that and by the way, because I've gone through this and I've had major and I've mentioned this before, major surgery and I was, you know, under narcotics for several months. I remember before I went into the surgery, I had to read all of this literature about how, you know, you can't make any big decisions now and you gotta wait and because you're not with it, you think you're with it, but you're really not with it. And you kind of and there are many moments in that six months that I don't remember, but I had to because I was in pain and I had open wounds. So anyway, the point is is that we have intoxication, and that which makes you high. Al muskir. These are the two things that the Sharia deems impermissible, the consuming of these products. Make sense? Yeah. Was that the question? Yes,
3: okay. and then the second one is um, when it comes to Hadith literature in general, the whole Hadith science, I'm kind of stuck on like how we can say our, side, our sources are more accurate than let's say Shia sources or whatever, because like we all agree, Shia, Sunni, you know, whatever, that the Quran is the same. Nobody argues that. When it comes to Hadith literature, it's not really like something you can prove. It's just, you know, my source, Bukhari, is right, you know, because I say so. But the Shia could just say, we don't believe him. Our sources are right. So how can we know that our side is
0: right? Uh, us saying now Bukhari, and Bukhari is right, is a conclusion statement of several centuries of scholarship. So there was a time where the Muslims weren't running around saying Bukhari was right and Muslim was right. They were saying, you know, this person narrated upon this person narrated upon this person narrated on the Prophet wasallam, and this chain of transmission is sound. All Imam al-Bukhari did is, and Muslim and all of these compilers of our canon, of the Sunni canon of hadith, is they collected all of these hadith and they cataloged them for us based on strength. But that which went into the hadith came prior to that. It's not like Bukhari was the first person to write hadith. The hadith was compiled at the time of the Prophet, ﷺ, as was the Mus'haf, as was the Quran. And these, they were called sahifa, these texts or these documents. And they were, you know, this sahifa, this sahifa, and then Imam Malik, he has the Muatta. This is an early one. Imam Abu Hanifa, he had a muatta. he had a collection of hadith. So there were all of these earlier, pre-Bukhari and Muslim, all these collections of hadith in the Sunni canon. All of these people, Bukhari and etc. did is they collected these and graded them based on the strength of the chain of transmission. So when I say, but that's very cumbersome every time to speak like that. So I just say, oh, Bukhari says it. So you say, oh, as a, as a Sunni Muslim, be like, oh, I, I know that, but that. I know there's a lot of work that went into this book, so I trust this book. Because after the Quran, this is the most verified book we have, if, if the Quran, we have 100% certainty in the Quran Al-Bukhari, we have like 75% certainty that it's all correct you know, are, Could there be mistakes here or there A little bit, this hadith is a little bit less than the criteria Yeah, sure, it's it's a human endeavor But the issue of the Sunni, does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, but the Sunni Shia thing, when it comes to hadith Where it differs is that we understand the Hadith coming from the companions differently than the Shia understand coming from the companions. So we have a wider pool of companions. If a companion said a hadith, we accept it as long as the chain after that companion is correct. The Shia, as far as I understand, they all, they limit the sources of the hadith that they take from that it was only from Ahlul Bayt. We accept those hadith as well, but we also accept the hadith of. Sayyidina Abu Bakr and Sayyidina Umar and Sayyidina Uthman and Khalid ibn Walid and you know, all of the other, Ka'ab and all of these other companions. So our pool of, of hadith sources is, a, is much larger than the, than the hadith of the, of the Shia. In addition to, if you examine the early sources of the um, hadith and the, the fiqh of the Shia, unfortunately it's extremely weak. There are very weak and uh, tra- transmissions, and it only goes back to like one or two people, where we have multiple schools of law, multiple companions, multiple lines of trans- transmission. So, and this is not to be a Sunni Shia polemic, I'm just yeah. saying factually and statistically, it, it ends up like that. Uh, Rasul at the, at the IEC, he told me last year that in Iran they compiled a collection of hadith that are agreed upon between the Sunnah and the Shia. And it's about eight, nine, he told me, I haven't seen it yet. But these type of efforts would be very helpful uh, because we, we should always try to build on that which we agree um, and much of the, of the Jafari Fiqh, much of it is very similar to Hanafi Fiqh And there's a lot of over, because Imam Abu Hanifa, he spent two years with Imam Jafar as-Sadiq, he says, لَوْلَى الْسَنَتَانْ لَهَلَكَ النَّعْمَنِ Were it not for the two years that I spent with Jafar as-Sadiq, I would have been lost. So there's a lot of similarities. And the disposition of, of the Muslim should always be to build rather than to destroy. So we don't want to... This is not the age of polemics. This is the age of building. But this is why there's a difference. Is this what you were after?
1: Yeah, so
3: I guess kind of build up on that. If So since Bukhari is a man, he's not obviously a prophet. He didn't come up with the Quran. It's just his own effort with creating Sahih Hadith. How would people today view modern efforts to... I guess you could say reevaluate. So, like you know, actually, that Bani he was kind of controversial when he was grading Sayyid Bukhari. Mean,
0: the the verification period of the Hadith of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam ended around the year five hundred of the Islamic calendar. So, Imam Al Bayhaqi, who died, I think, in like five o five Hijra or something like that, and Imam Al Ghazali, rahimahullah, who also died around the same time, actually, I think five o five, as well, uh, rahmatullah alayh. This is the end of the Salaf period. So, if we were in a mosque in Baghdad or in uh, Isfahan or Bukhara, and you know it was the year 350 of the Islamic calendar, and you gave me a hadith and you gave me a hadith, we can spar with each other based on the chain of transmission, and we can verify you might have gotten it wrong, or you, we might put these two chains together. But that effort ended within the first 500 years of Islam, it was done, there's, there's nothing else to do. So, Post-efforts, the reason we, we keep these chains of transmission now is for the for the barakah, for the grace that, that the chains carry. To go back the way Nasr al-Din al-Albani did and to redo the whole hadith apparatus and the whole hadith canon, there's a few things that happen. Number one, you end up, creating a lot of contradictions because what one of the greatest problems of Al-Albani's project is that he contradicted himself so in one book he'll say this hadith is sound and in another book he'll say the same hadith is daif so there's a literature that has emerged since the 1980s called tanaqudat al-Albani the contradictions of Al-Albani you can you can give their multi-volume books and i've met the authors that that used to debate him and work on them and it's it's some pretty nasty stuff the other thing is that you create a substrate of doubt amongst all Muslims that essentially you, you look to the entire edifice of Islam with doubt because what is the Sharia other than the interpretation of the Quran and the Sunnah? So you are, you are saying that, uh, you know, a thousand and four hundred years of scholarship was garbage. These people didn't know, and I know, and, and you get into this like this arrogance problem, and it, it's, it's nasty stuff. It's pretty nasty stuff. And Albani is largely responsible for the intellectual fuel for people like al qaeda now daesh and things like that unfortunately and i know when i say that people get upset because we have we're like domesticated to be like oh sheikh al islam not sheikh not islam zibala absolute utter garbage he was humiliated in his time he created nothing but doubt for us he contradicted himself he himself had no training he was not a, a, a trained uh, student of knowledge and, and, and things like that. And uh, yeah, we don't need that. So for me to go back, and that aside, the question is, can I go back and reanalyze al-Bukhari? Technically you could, but you have to use those tools that exist. Like the issue of shaking hands. For, for generations we were taught that a man cannot touch a woman, it's haram. Desire or no desire. But then we find this hadith, then we find this story, then we see this is weeks, and we put it all together, and we, we do our head, and we, so it's actually not. So technically, yes, it's possible, but I'm not going to go and say, oh, Muslims, this is all, you've all been lied to. This is all wrong. And this is uh, all full of doubt. He's a human, you're a human, you can do. It. No, I mean, he, he had a lot of training, he had a lot of memory, he was relying on the precedence of the generations before him, so on and so forth. So technically, you could. But will you find something outside of the canon? No, you're going to end up you know, coming to the same conclusion because the, the six collections of hadith that we have now has been generation, over a thousand years of generation of work has gone into creating that. So if you want to play that game, that's fine, but you have to play in that playing field, not, not from left field. Yes? Yeah, any fortune telling for fun, like my grandma used to read the, the coffee cup, you know, that's, that's okay. That's like, you know, she's like, oh, you have a long line, you have a leg in the east, a leg in the west, you know, just all this general stuff that can mean anything, you know, that's just all for play. But can I tell the future uh, by reading tea leaves and reading the, the cup and things like that? Uh, no, th- there is, you know, hadith about. Uh, you know the the star uh, astrolog- astrologers. You know, كذب المُنجمون ولو صدقوا, The Prophet said, the 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 astrologers lie, even if what they say ends up coming true. So sometimes you're right, sometimes you're wrong. We don't know the the, the what will happen tomorrow with certainty, except by Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. And our task is to live in the now, not to <coughs> try to, you know, uh, gamble with what's going to happen in in the future. So. You know, those those hadith would 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 mean that we don't, you know, fortune tell or or get money. But if it's like done in jest, I mean, it's just you know. Because I mean, at
3: the at the kids' school,
0: the the Islamic studies teacher said if you see a fortune teller for fun or whatever, your prayers aren't accepted for forty days. That's what I'm saying. It depends with the intention. You know, behind it. I mean, I grew up, my, my grandma used to, you know, you finish your cup of coffee and turn it upside. It was, I mean, she's fooling around. She's, a, you know, my a grandma. I mean, she's a, and she would just say everything that's about me. Oh, you're growing. Oh, you know, just random stuff. I mean, this, she's just fooling around with me. So it doesn't, you know, that stuff is fine if it's done in jest, you know, like, like that. Uh, anybody else? Hmm. <clears throat> um,
1: What's the question?
0: Uh, what do the Quran and the hadith say about sexual education for men and for women? So we have actually a very rich literature of sex manuals written by the ulama um, uh, for several centuries, maybe several hundred of them. Uh, Everything from uh, basics like education of of how the the sexual act is to be conducted, enhanced uh, aphrodisiacs, uh, positions, um, health, uh, how to satisfy different ailments. All of those kind of things. And now, alhamdulillah, actually some of them are being translated uh, and are available in English. And these things um, are, some of them are dated, you know, with uh, herbs and things like that. Some of them uh, re- reflect what was customary, but some of it is timeless. Uh, something happened, you know, maybe around 1500-1600s where that type of tradition died, died down. And, and unfortunately the Muslim world doesn't, doesn't have that. But in general, as an abstract concept, it's very important. Because in general, the Sharia does not want us to engage in something unless we know what we're, being, what we're about to engage in. So if it's prayer, we need to know how to pray. If we're going to umrah, we need to know how to make umrah. If it's Ramadan is coming, we need to know how to fast. So if you're going to get married, and that's obviously one of the byproducts of marriage, both need to know how that's done. And I actually have been, uh, in, uh, not in charge, but I have been involved... With a very, very low, unpublicized sex edge uh, program in Egypt. Because when we were working at Dar al Iftah, we noticed that you know, a huge percentage of the questions that were asked had to do with this issue and huge marital problems. Would well, this happen to be work with Dr. Shekin al Faki? No, no, no. This is with, with Al Azhar. This is something, something different. So um, I actually know a little bit more about this than I'm, I think I'm supposed to um, because of this experience. But one of the things that I noticed is that sexual education as uh, addressed in the West is based on a different paradigm than the Islamic paradigm. So some of the material that I get and some of the stuff that I have read, I would say 60-70% is compatible. But maybe like you know 30% is just a little bit different. And that's one of the mistakes in the Muslim world that the ulama stopped writing about this. Because when we wrote, when the ulama wrote about this, they wrote about it from a certain perspective, a certain cosmological perspective, a perspective of man and woman and husband and wife, you know, things like that. And, and unfortunately, we've lost that. And hopefully these efforts, you know, as, as, um, as the East becomes much more in the face of the West, due to communications and things like that, I'm sure that this will ignite more of this type of conversation. But this was actually a very rich, very rich um, uh, literature, uh, and um, Islam sees this as it sees anything else as as a must know for those that are about to engage engage in. So, would it be wise to be able to give your children the opportunity to learn that in the schools, or would it be more appropriate to take them out? Um, no, I mean general sex sex ed- education is something that's important. I mean because. You have to understand for us, it's not just the sexual act, it's also, it has to do with how one's own body is growing. And when when you're a a boy and you come of age, and when you're a girl and you come of age, there are certain things that you need to know about how your body works. And you know, so either your parents have to have that conversation with you, or there's some kind of education. So no matter what, all of us are gonna have to go through somebody telling us about that, the birds and the bees. It's just a fact of life. So, uh, I mean, I have not, it's been so many years uh, since I've done that and my kids are still not... So I actually don't know what the current curriculum looks like. But I would say generally, there's nothing wrong with that if it's you know done appropriately. And we, if there are things that are views that are expressed that are a little bit different than our views, we should also have the right to tell our children that there are some differences. But we should pin those differences to a different paradigm. Not, It's not about haram and halal. It's about the Qur'an has a very specific paradigm... About the relationship between man and woman. Uh, the Sharia also talks about transgender people and people that have uh, multi, you know, dual organs, one more that, we, The Sharia has a, a literature about this. So it, it would be helpful rather than run away from the problem, to just address it or to add and augment the current ed- curriculum with our own understanding, so that what we teach our children is copacetic with our overall paradigm of Islam, of how we look at life. and then therefore there is a consistency. So, I think it's it's important. Yeah? Uh,
3: just a quick historical question. So, if, unless I'm mistaken, the Ottomans were the only caliph, caliphate that were non Arabs, right? So, there's well, the like, Safavids. The Safavids, yeah. So, like, because um, they're. The and on
0: all been, of the Mughals?
3: Are they caliphs, though?
0: I mean, you know, mm-hmm. like small k caliphs. I mean, the only reason I'm Small c caliph.
3: um, The only reason I'm asking is because, like, we learn in history. I don't know if they still do this now, but we learn in history that the Ottomans weren't considered legitimate caliphs until, like, way later, like, Suleiman I. And is that true? Legitimate
0: from what point of view?
3: They weren't recognized as caliphs
0: because they were. I mean, whenever it comes to political power, everyone's gonna say this is not legitimate and stuff like that. But I mean, the way we generally. the, the the pure orthodox understanding that the Khalifa has to be from the family of the prophets I mean that went away a long time ago because it's just you know it's it was it's too narrow and the the Sharia literature about statecraft is very much more about high level meanings than it is about specifics of government and things like that so. A long, long time I mean, you know Several centuries ago The ulama sort of gave up With that problem Be like, okay As long as there's some semblance Of political order The person in charge Is is in the position of the caliph Whether it's khalifa, sultan, amir Whatever the, you know The, the term is So this, I don't know Were this they
3: This is just something That I was taught When I was in high
0: school But even, even till now Much of the Arab world Has much problems with Turkey There's this Arab-Turk thing And and when you meet a Turk, they're very, you know, proud of their Ottoman background And then, you know, they kind of sneer at the Arabs and the Arabs sneer It's just this, you know, for non-Islamic reasons, these things happen um, But uh, the, 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 in terms of legitimacy, from the Sharia point of view, uh, on a high level, no, these were all legitimate states um, That doesn't mean that they're perfect uh, as it 's quite the contrary the the, the Sharia sees you know, statecraft as as messy business, which is why I think it 's very silent on the details um, but on the on pure legitimacy, the most pure claim is probably the King of Morocco today. I mean, I think they have had a continuous family line for several hundred years. They are from al-Bayt, <coughs> you know or the the Hashemites of Jordan, which are from the family of the prophet Saaddam. So, I mean, you know, if you want to look at that legitimacy, those type of things exist. But overall, uh, these claims of non-legitimacy have to do with, you know, political problems than it has to do with, like, Islamic problems. Any other questions? Yes. Abdul Qadir al Jilani? Abdul Qadir al Jilani was one of the great uh, saints of Islam. Uh, He was from Baghdad. He was also an alim, he was also a scholar. Uh, But his main uh, benefit to the community was his knowledge of the inner and the knowledge of tasawwuf. And from Abdul Qadir comes the Qadiriyya tariqah. Which is one of the oldest and most widespread of the of uh, the Sufi orders, and most of the Sufi orders after that are in some way splinters from Abdul Qadir al-Jilani. So he was one of the, the saintly figures of Islam, uh, one of the major you know major figures uh, of Islam. He was he was the Wali with the big W. Yeah, he was a major wali. <laughs> who, in, who in Algeria? Abdul Qadir al-Jazairi. That's somebody different. Abdul Qadir al-Jazairi was a uh, political and spiritual leader in Algeria that fought the resistance. And occupation and was subsequently exiled to Damascus. He also was a Sufi himself, and he has actually the Ilhamat, a beautiful series of writings that talks about his, his uh, understanding. And he died in Damascus, and he was originally buried next to uh, Sheikh Al Akbar Muhideen ibn Al Arabi. And then his body was later transferred uh, to Algeria, where it rests, where it rests today. This is, but his name was Abdul Qadir as well. But Abdul Qadir Al-Jazairi, um, because he was from Algeria. And actually he was very celebrated at his time in the West. You know, Abraham Lincoln you know, uh, wrote him a letter, and, and he had many stances where he stood up for the Christian minority in Damascus you know, after his, his jihad in, in Algeria. Uh, and there's been much written about him in the English language <clears throat> that you can find. Different than Abdul Qadir Al-Jilani. Is another. Uh, these are all of the our spiritual heroes. If we had like the Muslim Justice League, it would be all these people. <laughs> so uh, Ahmed Tijani, everybody in Morocco was uh, shadhili until Ahmed Tijani came and he he has a new way, and uh, he, his uh, way is very prominent in West Africa. Uh, so in, in in you know Mali and Niger and Chad and Nigeria and Mauritania and Morocco and and all of the you know in any kind even here we have a Tijaniya Zawiya in Silver Spring. <clears throat> Very popular. So then yes, if, you know, if you I think you about the the region, right? the Who? Sheikh who Everybody came to Egypt <clears throat> because Egypt is on the way to Hajj from the west. So anybody from Andalusia all the way down came comes through Cairo to uh, in the history of Egypt on the time of Yusuf Salam he wrote something in was like a, 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 whatever he hey Yusuf Lala Yusuf alayhi Salam is before is, uh, our Islam Yusuf alayhi Salam was Islam with a capital I this is Islam with a lowercase i. Do you understand? Okay. So, what happened in Asia, the time of Yusuf Al Islam, he wrote, it was like when you come to the
1: city, you see Welcome to Washington. The Yusuf family wrote, wherever you come in, when you come in, this is the place to be a new scholar.
0: I don't know who this is, but there are many, there are too many people that have come through Egypt and many from the East and from the West. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Any other questions?
1: Sheikh, could you say a couple of things about the spiritual healing? In the West, there are, you know, especially the mental sicknesses, and uh, they have no solution, they have no. All they do give uh, the person a uh, sleeping pill
0: you know and uh, spiritual healing well spiritual healing is a, is is too big of a topic
1: yes that's true
0: but uh, islam i mean generally speaking very generally speaking our understanding of the human being is that we are body soul and self the nafs so In order for somebody to be healthy, there has to be integration between these three You can't treat one without the other And it's the the nafs that has more of the impact on how we are than the body and and then the soul And when that's integrated and enhanced, this is where we have complete health but when we, when we negate the self, the nafs, and we don't feed it, then we, that's where the sicknesses come. And we start to, to heal the sickness only from the point of view of the body. We will never really solve the, the deeper problem. This is why Allah says, أَلَا بِذِكْرِ اللَّهِ al qulub." Verily by the remembrance of Allah, the heart is calmed. So our overall health program is based on dhikr, is based on remembrance of Allah ﷻ. Now remembrance can take many different forms, you can read the Quran, the greatest form of dhikr is to read the Quran. And Allah says that the Quran is a healing for the human being, so there are certain verses, and certain surahs that we read, in certain patterns, in certain numbers, that heal certain um, ailments. Because each verse of the Quran, every time you, you, what all of this speech that we're saying, it's just a bunch of waves, right? Sound waves. The different verses of the Quran, they are going to have a different um, wave packet or packet of energy when they are recited. So when you recite certain verses, they will correspond with certain healings, certain ailments. So either you read the Quran, you know, on some water and then you drink the water or you read it when you're making food, or you just read it when you're sick, things like that. That's one form of, of remembrance. Another form of remembrance as an institution is the prayer on the Prophet wasallam. You know, one of the famous books that we have in Islam, The Shifa of Qadi Ayyad, is a book that describes the inner aspects of the Prophet wasallam. The reason it's called as Shifa, the healing, is that this book was meant to be read by those that were sick, to heal them so prayer on the prophet وسلم, as a general concept is another like dhikr institution that we have for healing the names of allah subhanahu wa ta'ala certain names also la ilaha illallah allah hu haq qahar latif all of these names have different impacts on the on the soul on the nafs so if we have a steady regiment of always remembering allah subhanahu wa ta'ala it's like vitamins then we will, we will normally be integrated and healthy. It doesn't mean that we won't get sick, but when we get sick, that sickness will easily pass, you know, because we will have this um, uh, resilience, you know, to, to, to problems. Uh, and this is how we can, you know, stem a lot of mental health issues and, and you know, and things like that. So, I mean, but th- this is a very general answer, but because this is a, a too big of a topic. But in general, we have to incorporate in our life some form of remembrance of Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala, and remembrance and praise of the Prophet Sallallahu right. Alaihi If we do this, we will, you know, we will be whole on the inside. We'll be will be pretty immune moving forward. Do
1: you think one time at least every month we could have a dhikr.
0: We, we, we have this is a form of dhikr. This yes, the, the, this is a learning, and this is another form of dhikr. You want darwish, uh, dhikr? Yeah, best, you, uh, we we go somewhere else. We could do darwish. So we don't we don't cause commotion for the people. But inshallah, we do darwish. <coughs> <Thank you>. Yeah. <coughs> could you talk about the functional
3: difference between dhikr Allah and Salawat
0: unto the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam? The Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam is the Sheikh for the person that doesn't have a Sheikh. So, if you have no way, if you have no guide, your guide is the Prophet sallallahu alaihi So, in general, that's the default: is that I'm going to do much prayer and praise on the Prophet sallallahu alaihi because that's going to protect me. If you have a way, <clears throat> each way—qadri, tijani, Naqshbandi, shadi—all of these ways—they're the same. They're the same goal, the same function. But the the diet, the vitamins that they take are different. So if you if you're in a way, you follow the regimen of that way because that way's secret or that way's um, tested uh, benefit to humanity is in the regimen. Whether maybe it's fasting, maybe it's service, uh, maybe it's uh, whirling, maybe it's saying this name of Allah, that name of so on and so forth. So if you're in that way, then you follow that way till. It's conclusion. But if you're just an average Muslim and you don't understand this, you don't want to get confused, then you stick to the Prophet wasallam. However, when you're in the way, after you get over the zealousness that you're in the way and I get to wear special clothes and I'm this and this is my shaykh is better than your shaykh and he can beat up. Once you get past all of that, you also find that it is the Prophet wasallam that is guiding you. Because everything in Islam goes back to the Prophet Wasallam. There is nothing that we have in this faith that does not come from Sayyidina Muhammad. The Quran, the hadith, our sharia, the way we pray, the way we fast, the way we do everything is nothing but us reenacting and reliving the life of Sayyidina Muhammad. So, the way, in a funny way, is only to get you back to that conclusion. So, sometimes you need to go this way, sometimes you need to go that way. And the remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. With dhikrullah, like you know, La ilaha illallah or Allah's names, that sometimes can be overwhelming for somebody if they don't have somebody to guide them and teach them how to do it. But the Prophet ﷺ is for everybody. The Prophet, really, if you think about it, is even for non Muslims because he is the Nabi that has been sent to humanity and on al Qiyamah, he will, uh, he will uh, uh, intercede on all of humanity, not just us. So the Prophet ﷺ is like the easy access point Very gentle, very beautiful very So when you do salawat on the Prophet ﷺ You bring that meaning closer to you Until it subsumes you on the inside And you become that which you remember So when you remember You're converting yourself You're metamorphosizing yourself Into that which you remember That is the goal So the Prophet ﷺ is, is a form of uh, worship and spiritual practice that you can put no limit on. There's no limit to how much you can do that. Allah accepts that from the Muslim and not the non-Muslim. Uh, and there's no, there's no limit to, to, to what you can do on that. The other dhikrullah sometimes it can be, the packet of energy can be too much. So you need sort of a guide and it has all these rules and you have to do this and you have to do that at this time of the day. So all of these kind of gets a little confusing. So the salawat on the Prophet, this is the ease. So this is why we hold to it. Inshallah. inshallah. Yes. I
1: want to ask this question.
0: Um, during uh, the Afra prayer and the five prayers, why the astra prayer we say it louder but it's not louder? What is it? I always have that question. Because this is what the Prophet taught us. Fajr Maghrib and Isha we say out loud and Dhuhr and Asr we don't. So sometimes we, we, we simply do because that's what the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. He said, Pray the way you have seen me pray. So not everything has to have a special meaning. But, we, but the meaning for us is that we, we hear and we obey. The Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam did this, that's what we do. <coughs> Anybody else? Can we talk about Moses then? Okay, so last time we spoke, whenever that was, <clears throat> I think we left off in Moses being commissioned uh, with prophethood after uh, uh, the, the bush, the burning bush, all of that episode. We talked about that. So now he becomes, you know, Nabi, Nabi Musa. And he asks Allah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives him two signs. He, he gives them the sign that his arm turns white and he gives them the sign that his staff uh, is turned into a snake and then turned into a staff. He's giving these two signs. So Allah tells him, you, you go to Pharaoh now and you use these two signs and you free Bani Israel. And we mentioned how Moses, uh, he had a type of uh, lisp uh, because of an accident that happened when he was young. So he was a little, not nervous, but he was telling Allah that my brother Aaron, he is more eloquent than I am, because his speech is smoother, so send him with me. So Aaron is also now commissioned as a prophet. So this is a unique situation, we have Harun and, and Musa, Aaron and Moses, uh, are brothers, and they're also prophets together. We also mentioned, I, I think that the, um, the significance of Aaron in the Jewish faith is that the priestly class in Judaism is de- the descendants of Aaron, not the descendants of Moses. I think that's where we left off. So Moses now, alayhi <clears throat> salam, he goes, after all of these years, uh, having fled Egypt uh, because of the challenges that he had, uh, the person that he killed by mistake, and and, and those type of things. And he everyone knew that he was a, a Hebrew from birth because he you know they found him in the, the Nile and all of that. So he fled. So this is like a long time. You know, that, that he's a big gap. So he's still like known. They know who this person is. But now he comes back completely transformed. You know, he's married. He has a family. He's a prophet. Uh, he has these two signs. Harun is with him. And now he's going and he has like a big ask. So he wants Pharaoh to free the Israelites from this you know, bondage that they're in uh, and to sort of, sort of be on their way. Now, of course, Pharaoh does not take, take well to, to this kind of, of thing and this becomes like the, the background for this, the tension that happens between uh, Pharaoh and, and Moses. But when they begin, Moses starts telling Pharaoh about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So if you, if you follow the stories of, of the Prophets in our literature, all of them, they have this one you know, one uh, shared trait. That they always use the opportunity to talk about this, the concept of this oneness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Whether it was Joseph in jail with the guys and the dream, he, he, he talked to them about God. Whether it be uh, Jonah or, or Lut or all of the people that we've talked about and we will talk about. This is, the, this is the shared trait. This is the Islam with a capital I that I was referring to. They're all going to say the same thing. Now nothing upsets Pharaoh more than this. Because Pharaoh's problem or the, the Pharaoh complex is that I am number one. There's nobody better than me. There's no one smarter than me. There's no one that has more power than me. And, and if you notice, Allah does not tell us Pharaoh's name. He's just Pharaoh. That's it, he's just Pharaoh. And he's like an archetype. And 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 even though we we have in the past, you know, Allah may be like, oh, is this Pharaoh? Is this. No one really cares. The, the Muslim community—they don't really care if it was this Pharaoh or that. It doesn't really matter, because Pharaoh is Pharaoh. He's the guy that we're talking about. He's this archetype, and this is like the the archetype in the Quran of the bad person. You see, it's not Satan, it's not Shaitan, it's Pharaoh. He's the one that we're warned about—that we don't want to be like this. So when when Moses tells him about Allah, this, he flips. He so said, What is this Allah business? He's like, I am Allah. I do these things. I give life and I give death and I can do this and I can do that, to the point that he told his people, you build me a tall tower so I can go see this Allah that Moses is talking about. You know, like some like giant in the sky or something like that. So Moses was like super arrogant. You know, he is the epitome of arrogance. He, he's so blinded he can't see even the stupidity of his reactions. So Moses says, Okay, I'm gonna show you some stuff. That will convince you. Because he has these two signs. Right? The interesting thing is even though he asked for Harun to come, all of the dialogue is with Moses. Harun comes later. When they're lost and the Ten Commandments and that will come later. But right now it's Moses is the one doing all of this talking. With the man who he grew up in his house. This is the same Pharaoh Who fed him and clothed him and educated him and all of these things. So Moses because this these signs and every prophet was sent with some kind of sign or some kind of miracle to aid in their in their job but that sign was something that was of the time. So at this time with the pharaohs and Egypt and ancient Egyptians there was all of this, you know, magic and use of minerals and mercury and architecture, structure, all this kind of stuff. So Moses' signs are all of these like magic on steroids So magic was like a trick You know like when you have like a card game Or like someone pulls uh, the dollar from behind your ears they're, they're like tricks, right? Sleight of hand And black magic is like that It's very weak, it's not very strong Moses, that's, that's like you know, something on steroids It's unbelievable But it's from the same type of what was common at that time and you find also this to be the case with all of the MBA. They're, they were aided by something that was typical of that time, but done in a way that was otherworldly. Like the Arabs, they could speak and they had poetry and language and stuff like that, and then the Prophet has the Quran. Well, that's like nothing like what they had. So it, it, it kind of is to demonstrate to those people. Anyway. So Moses, because he had this interaction with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he knows that he has these two signs and, and you know, he, this is going to outdo everything. So he tells them, okay, I'm gonna, let's meet publicly in the festival day. There'll be a yamuzina, the Qur'an says, there's a big festival, right at like, you know, in, in afternoon when it's, the sun is out and everyone's out, let's do this thing. Not in the evening, not in secret, not in a closed room when it's dark and we have like these torches and stuff like that. No, we'll do it in the the light of day so everyone can see. And he has this great confidence. So it's Moses, Pharaoh's watching and then Pharaoh brings his his magician people and uh, they start competing. So the magicians... And there's several of them. So Moses is outnumbered, you know, and Moses is, is just like, you know, dressed simply, and there's all of this uh, paraphernalia in the court of the Pharaoh and all of this. So you would think that Moses is, uh, is not going to perform well. So the, the magicians, they throw down their staffs and they use this like play of light, and maybe there was like some kind of mercury in the staff. So they, the, the, the staffs look like they wiggle and everyone's like cheering you know it's like the it's like ringling brothers and barnum berry it's like a circus yo know, oh, you know look at the the clown and you know, stuff like that then moses throws down his staff you know and the the magicians freak out because the magicians know their own trick they they can't do that you know and and it's just this is an unbelievable uh, sight so some of the magicians they just they make they they prostrate to moses uh, as as a sign that what he has is something that was that's real. We're fake. That's real. Whatever that is, that's real. And we believe in whatever it is that you're saying. So this makes Pharaoh even more mad. So Pharaoh, he says to the magicians, Oh, he is your teacher. He is the one that taught you this disobedience and this trickery. And, and he's the one that spoiled you. I'm going to you know, kill you. So he orders like these magicians taken away and like, you know, crucified in whatever horrible way they, they die in this, you know, in this uh, typical Pharaoh way. And then, you know, Moses is like hiding his arm, so they're like, what are, you, what are you hiding? And then he pulls out his arm and it's like glowing, it's like a light bulb, it's like glowing, you know. These are things that they couldn't do. So Pharaoh, you see the arrogance of Pharaoh, he doesn't, he doesn't inquire, how could you do this, what is this? He, doesn't, he just makes him more mad and more mad and more mad. So Pharaoh kicks him out. But Pharaoh has a little bit of fear, because he knows that what he saw is not normal. But, at the same time, he kind of like is messing up his like mojo. Now he's not Pharaoh anymore. Now everyone's going to wonder why can this guy from the desert do this, but you can't. So rather than ask for Moses to be arrested or to kill, he sort of just sort of like ignores him and kind of shuns him from court. So Moses goes back to his people and this is where Moses is doing his like Moses thing. So he's like talking to the Hebrews. He's talking. He's He reconnects with his family. Aaron is there. He's teaching them about this. He's telling them we're going to be saved. Allah gave him, you know. So this is like the, the sub story is Moses is being Moses to the to the to the Jews, right? But at the same time, what happens is all of the signs that we're, we're familiar with uh, the stories of these signs they happen one after another. The frogs. Uh, the nile turning into blood uh, the locusts, the hail all of these signs that were given in addition to the two signs that Moses have they happen you know week after week and Moses is not doing anything he's not there with pharaoh he's you know hanging out with his people and the pharaoh is like starting to like freak out okay because this is this is beyond, uh, okay, the light bulb hand and the staff. Those are one-off things. But this is like the whole river turns into blood. There's all of these frogs and all of these locusts. It starts hailing. If you've ever been to Egypt, doesn't hail much in Egypt. You know. All of these weird things start happening. All of us, Since this guy came and started talking about Allah and free us and I'm a prophet of God and things like that. So it is under this... Background, and we'll, we'll end... Oh, we still have a little bit of time. It's under this background... Isn't Aisha at 8.30? Brother Moses? 8.15? Okay. We'll, we'll, we'll end in time, inshallah. It's under this background of the story that Moses is instructed by Allah, you know, through revelation, and instructed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that now you have to flee. And in the... In the Jewish narration of the story, this is the story of like the unleavened bread and stuff like that because they had to like leave very quickly. And what do our sources tell us about this story is that they're following essentially like this pillar of light. Like this like pillar of light emerges in like the distance and Moses is like, okay, that's where we're going. So they go. And the thing about the story of Moses, one of the lessons that we take from us, the one of the lessons that we take from it is the, the, the lesson of faith I mean you take this from all of the stories But this is very manifest Because unfortunately the people that go with Moses Their faith is always shaky Like what are you talking about? Why should we go there? Why should we do that? Why should we? How is this going to happen? I don't want to go and fight And we'll follow the story They always did this to him But Moses' faith was unwavering Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said This is going to happen, this is going to happen Go to Pharaoh, go to Pharaoh Why do we pray the dhuhr not out loud but because the Prophet ﷺ told us. And that's the the, the attitude that sometimes we have to remember we need to have when it comes to religion. When we have something that's real in front of us, we follow it. If we keep questioning it and questioning it and questioning it, then what we're doing is we're we're, uh, injecting our doubt into our own faith. And then our faith sort of crumbles. Now of course we have questions and we want these questions answered and that's normal. But when we get the answer and we understand what we're supposed to do, we need to do it. So Moses is like, that's where we're going. I mean, what else do you want? There's a pillar of light in front of us, night and day. I mean, that should be sign enough that that's where we're supposed to go. So they flee. And there's like hundreds of thousands of Israelites. I mean, there's a lot of people at this point. And at that time, that was an enormous amount of people. It's like, you know, several st- the state of California, l- fleeing California. It's a lot of people. So you can't really conceal all of these people. So Pharaoh finds out. Because these are his uh, slaves and his workers and all of that. So Pharaoh finds out. So Pharaoh goes after them himself. He doesn't send his people. He goes with his people and he goes out. Because now he knows that his mistake was that he let Moses live. And they go all the way to the sea. And then Moses is instructed to strike the sea with his staff I mean imagine you walking behind somebody Who's your leader And then he starts hitting the water with his stick It doesn't look very uh, promising That much is going to happen Right? But this is the test of faith At that time Our test of faith is different But at that time this is their test of faith So you start, he smacks the sea in whatever way with a stick And then it parts And the hadith say that the, the, the uh, water are like mountains Mountains of water I mean what more, if you're with Moses, if you had any doubt at that point, there should be no doubt after this point. I mean the signs and the light and the snake and the frogs and the, all the, the blood, okay, and the pillar of light. But then the, 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 the sea splits and these are not sea-faring people. This is not, these are not people that understand the sea. This is an unbelievable miracle. So they cross. And imagine now if you're Pharaoh and you see this. What more do you need to see than this sight of awesomeness, of this un, you know, opposite of what's natural, to believe? But Moses, in his blind arrogance, he goes after Moses. Pharaoh, in his blind arrogance, he goes after Moses and he perishes. But right before he dies, what does Pharaoh say? He said, I believe now. <laughs> I believe. He says to Allah, I believe in the God of Moses and and Harun. Right? And then Allah says in the Quran, Al An, you know, now, how many signs do we have to send you? How many opportunities do we have to give you? But that statement of Pharaoh is a statement of honesty. Honest belief in the sense that he saw with his own eye, it was too late for his. You know, soul and his trajectory with his, the rest of him, his relationship with Allah, it's too late. But if you think about that statement of Pharaoh, that's an honest statement, a statement of belief. That he genuinely, at that point, he said, okay, it's real. It's just too late for him. So, inshallah, we don't want to be like that. We don't want our arrogance to blind us. So, the other lesson for us is that what are the signs that Allah has given us in our own life? Now, they're not going to be as dramatic, trust me. But Allah is is communicating to us with the things that happen around us. The things that we call quote-unquote coincidence and the people we meet randomly, quote-unquote randomly and things like that. These are not random things, but this is Allah's way of communicating with us. His gentleness, His reminders. Uh, You see something, you hear something, you remember something, you smell something and it reminds you of this, it reminds you... All of these things are not just a coincidence, not random. There's no randomness in the world. As I was saying in the khutbah, not a leaf falls from the tree except that Allah has ordained it and written it in His book. So for us, the, the stories are always dramatic, so we remember them, right? But our life is not going to be this dramatic, unless anyone has saw the sea split in front of them, which I doubt. But the, sto- the point for us is to read in the events of our life these signs. That's the point. The believer is always looking for these signs. And you will never know where you'll find these signs. Sometimes you'll... The most random place, the most random person, you're watching a movie, you're reading an article, reading a book, has nothing to do with the Islam. But it's, it's the world around you that is, that is created by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that is communicating to you. So Pharaoh dies, and Allah says we are going to preserve you, as a sign, so some people they say there's one of the uh, mummies in the Cairo Museum, and I've seen this mummy several times. They say that this is the Pharaoh. That's pretty freaky because you know it looks looks like a person, you know, um, and some people say it was a part of his body or you know who knows. But the point is is that Allah promises Pharaoh or or promises that this part of you will survive as an ongoing reminder for the for the story. So Moses flees with Beni Israel and Harun, but this is really the beginning of the story of Moses. There's a lot more, the, the, all of this drama, this is just like the introduction. The real stuff is going to happen now, all of the, the fun stuff is going to happen now. So this is the end of, so we talked about Moses like as birth and growing up with Pharaoh, Uh, Fleeing, becoming a prophet Now they've escaped Pharaoh is dead Uh, But now he's going to have his own set of Challenges within his own community So inshallah uh, Next week we we continue the story uh, With Moses inshallah Any last minute questions Before we pray
3: Yeah. So in the Judeo-Christian narrative Of this story uh, After the toads and the hail One of the signs is like the killing of the firstborn children uh, is that in ours,
0: or well, no? the killing of the firstborn children is like a constant, uh, they did this several times, the, the pharaoh and, and stuff. No, like
3: one of the signs, yeah. so like Allah sent the frogs to hail down and like the, the sea
0: turned red. Oh, you mean for the pharaoh? Yeah, 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 yeah that's right, that's right. That's, that's yeah, true. That's also yeah, yeah, I didn't mention all of them, but yeah, i sorry, I thought you meant something else. Okay, everyone Okay. Okay. Oh, yeah. Allah والله تعالى اعلى واعلم